Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Anne Friedman. On this week's agenda, we are bringing you some highlights and a few lowlights from 2016. Do you remember when Amina had to explain to me what the hell was happening with Black China and the Kardashians? Uh, I do. And it was brilliant. Step by step. What happened first? (sighs) Let's start way back when. In 2007, 2008, 2008, Kanye West, a rapper, (laughs) now a Kardashian, started dating this beautiful woman named Amber Rose. Amber Rose is awesome. She's like a feminist. She's so down for a lot of lady causes. And she was his muse. She is also sharp as a fucking tack. It should be noted. So Kanye and Amber date for like two years. Very tumultuous. When it ends, he writes an entire album about her. My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Important Amina Ann (laughs) album. So much drunk dancing to that album. Oh, like I can't even start. It's all about Amber Rose. So it's like, listen to it to get in the mood. So Kanye and Amber break up. Amber starts dating this rapper called Wiz Khalifa, who has like some hits, but mostly is like popular for being I got the second coming of Snoop Dogg and how much pot he smokes. I ain't gotta hit yours. I'm talking straight Indo. Kelly weed blowing like a rust of mine. Yeah, he's like a he's like a pot gif icon on Tumblr. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but he's like, he's done some good shit for the culture. So I like, you know, we let it slide. They have this like really cute son, Sebastian, aka Bash. Amber and uh, and Wiz are married for like two years and then got divorced, I think in 2014 because of cheating. But they're still like friendly-ish. She like, Amber obviously still loves Wiz and they're in each other's lives. And they have a kid together. I saw that like Christmas morning photo on Amber's Instagram and definitely Wiz probably spent the night. It was crazy. <laughs> but so anyway, pause, pause <laughs> on that relationship. In the meantime, Kanye West had a kid and married Kim Kardashian West. Bam. The whole thing is just like a beautiful affair. Concurrently happening, Black China, who is a model and uh, eyelash entrepreneur, is like dating this rapper named Tyga, who we don't like. But they have a son together named King Cairo. King Cairo and Bash are like besties. Also, Amber and Black China. Besties. Yes. And then Amber, Amber and Black China are besties, but plot twist. In this era, Black China and Kim are besties. Mm. So anyway, Black China and Tyga break up. And even after the breakup, like Black China and Kim are like really good friends. There's like much Instagram taking pictures of their butts side by side and trips to Paris. When Tyga and Black China break up, he starts dating Kim's little sister, Kylie Jenner. Kylie is a minor. Tyga is not. It's like the day that she turned 18, they were like, we're dating now. And we were like, the last year said. <laughs> I, got, I got a boyfriend for my 18th birthday. <laughs> yeah. As previously noted, Black China and Amber Rose are incredibly close, like to the point where they wear matching outfits on red carpets together. Earlier last year, Amber goes on this show called The Breakfast Club, shocks about Tyga and Kylie. And she, like, makes the observation that, like, Kylie's underage. I think I think she said something like, Kylie's a baby. She needs to go to bed at seven and relax. Like, why is Tyga, like, why did he leave his girlfriend and baby to be with a 16-year-old? True observations. And also, like, in this timeout, I want to note that, like, Amber never talks shit about the Kardashians. And even then, she, like, responded to something that she was asked. And also, real talk, we all agree. Anyway, <laughs> Kylie has this older sister named Chloe Kardashian. We love Chloe, but like Chloe problematic for so many reasons, including this reason. She's always the one that's getting into Pollock fights. The Kardashians, you can hate them if you want. They always take the high road. They'll talk shit about each other like all day, but they never discuss Keep it in people. the family. Keep it in the family. 
Chloe goes off message and on Twitter tries to like come at Amber and it was like an epic Twitter day. So Chloe's just like talking all this smack. She's just like, Amber is a stripper. Stop talking about us in your interviews. Amber like comes back at her so strong. She's like, well, I'm a whore, kind of like your sister. So don't, <laughs> don't slut shame me. And I was like, fair point, Amber. But at the end of the day, like Amber, like one, it was like not even close. She goes, lesson of the day, children, please don't try Mava. That's what she calls herself. Cause I will humble you. Remember this. Important lesson. She, like, has, she has like predicted that she will humble you. So like, don't come at her. Days after Amber's interview, Kanye also goes on that aforementioned breakfast club. And he talks about his relationship with Amber. And he like says this really awful thing about how he had to take 30 showers after being with Amber to like get with Kim, which is like awful. And Amber, she like defends herself. She slips in a couple of shots at Kim Like, she's obviously hurt, but she, like, still says that she used to love him, and so she's not going to talk shit about him. And then also famously tells him that she's not going to humiliate him because the Kardashians will humiliate him when they're done with him. (laughs) Things to, to, again, foreshadowing. Too real. Anyway, Amber and Black China have, like, the best friendship. They, like, keep going to award shows. They wear, like, matching outfits, like, at the VMAs. They were the one that has, like, all the derogatory stuff about, like, women on their bodies. Amber hosts a slut walk in LA. It was amazing. Like, you know, the entire internet was there for her. At the slut walk, she, like, famously forgives Kanye for what he said about her. Everybody's like, okay, everything is fine. I'm sorry this is taking so long, but I had to give you the entire I am, background. I am living this for this right story. now. Do not apologize. Okay. And then what happens this week? Black China Instagrams a picture of herself, and there's like a man's arm around her body. The entire internet full of investigators like me notice that that arm that is around her, the tattoo, looks very similar to one Robert Arthur Kardashian, <gasps> brother of Kim, Chloe, Kylie, and the rest of the family. So Blonde China is hanging out with Rob. Chloe starts tweeting all these like dumb cryptic messages. Nobody cares. Pause. Rob for the last three years has been like one of those like Japanese reclusive kids <laughs> and just been like in hiding. He's been like off camera. <laughs> He's, like, going through some sort of, like, depressive episode, and they hint at it on the show a lot, and, like, Chris Jenner cries a lot because she's, like, very devastated. So, anyway, Rob comes out of the woodwork on Instagram, and and then there was, like, a, he posts, like, this beautiful picture of Black China, like, with no makeup on his Instagram, you know, like, clearly hinting that, like, they're a thing now. The internet is, like, freaking out. It's like, what is going on? This all brings me to last week's events. <laughs> Are you hanging in there? Are you sitting? I'm here. I'm lot. actually gripping the sides of this weird desk thing that I stand okay. at in my closet. <laughs> okay. Kanye has been like, for like the last year, has told the world that his album that's coming out in a couple of weeks is called Swish. But he's like now changed the name from Swish to Waves, presumably because there's a wave emoji and uh, he can use that for marketing. That's true. You think no I'm- Swish emoji. I don't know. Also, something about Swish feels like very, for example, like you might use it as a slur or as something positive about a gay man. And like we've exactly. all heard those rumors about Kanye. Maybe you wouldn't, if you were like worried about people making that association with you, want to title your album. But like it's Kanye. So anyway, he announces that he's changing the name of the album. He like takes a picture of a legal pad with his like awful handwriting. <laughs> it's like we can't read half of the track list. I'm like, did Nori write this? Unclear. <laughs> He always talks about how he gets no respect in the design world. (laughs) My man, stop using legal pads. Like, get a moleskin or a field notes notebook or something. This is so embarrassing. Anyway. He's like a Sharpie in a legal pad. Yeah, it's so Way bad. Way too thick and for the like, font size he's writing in. <laughs> oh my god, and it's like you literally can't that write. That makes everyone look like a child as well. Like, if you have a really thick marker and are trying to write small, no one looks sophisticated. Yeah, it's so bad, and on this legal pad, like, everybody who's in the studio is leaving notes. It's like, Kylie was here, Kim never left, Coco is here. You know, oh. like, so embarrassing. So embarrassing. He posts this on the internet, so everybody's like, oh, waves, like, this is what we're excited about. So, remember Wiz Khalifa, Amber Rose's ex-boyfriend? Barely, but yes. (laughs) So, Wiz makes this comment on Instagram about how he doesn't want Kanye to take Wavy away. Wavy is a style of music that 
Maxby, who's like a political prisoner now, <laughs> he's been in jail for a long time. Uh, political prisoner is how I refer to any rapper in jail. P.S. That was his style. And Wiz, you know, is just like, don't take Wavy away from us. And then like, that's it. And like, that's fair. Wiz says on his Twitter is like, hit this KK and become yourself. Anybody who like periphery follows Wiz knows that KK is Khalifa Kush. It's like his brand of weed or whatever. Kanye interprets KK to be Kim Kardashian. Because he's paranoid. Because he's paranoid and he's crazy. All of these tweets are now deleted, but he went on this crazy rant and was like, don't put my wife's initials on Twitter, Liz Khalifa. <laughs> Whatever. Start a fight club, Brad reputation. And seriously, the rant was like 20 tweets. I know. All of these tweets that these now deleted tweets to me are one giant cautionary tale against doing a thing that like, I think is tempting even for mere mortals, but is apparently like a crippling temptation for Kanye, which is assuming that everything everybody else does is about you. Oh my God, preach. One of his things in the rant is how he made it cool. Him and Kid Cudi made it cool for like black people to wear tight pants. (laughs) False. That was Lil Wayne, but whatever, Kanye. He says to Wiz, he's like, you let a stripper trap you. The stripper is their mutual ex, Amber Rose. Bad Bad choices, Kanye. More bad choices. Bad choices. And he even has a dig against like the kid in there because he's just like, he's like, the only reason you have a kid is because of me. And I'm like, "Mm, way to see your exes as property, Kanye. Bad. So bad. Way to see all women involved in this as your property, Kanye. Exactly. He like praises Kim for the same reasons that he disparages Amber. And it's like, and then there's like that weird intersection of like class and race. It's like, it's because Amber is black that like people feel comfortable saying that to her, but like people say the same things about Kim and how her career got started and like all of the stuff. Surprising to me, Wiz Khalifa takes like the high road and he's like, KK is a weed. He's like, I'm just like stepping out of this. And then Kanye realizes that he's like made a mistake and he's like, please excuse the confusion. <laughs> you think the you think the whole thing is over. But that's when Amber Rose, who is like a stealth Twitter ninja fighter, steps into the ring at this point and goes, in fact, I'm just gonna read it. She goes, Aw, at Kanye West. Are you mad I'm not around to play in your asshole anymore? Hashtag fingers in the booty ass bitch. <laughs> and then the like index finger up emoji. This is the point that Can I Can I confess out. to something here? Which is that when I saw that tweet, I verbally out loud was like, oh, but however, I also felt a certain amount of shame because should not be shaming Kanye for being interested in butt play. I know, but here's the thing. Here's how I felt about it. If you bring up her kid and you like shame her again, there are no rules. Nobody has to fight fair anymore because he has not been fighting fair. I mean, I'm talking about my personal rules, which is like not to shame someone for being into having their butt fondled. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. I think, I think that's t- totally fair. <laughs> I feel the same way. But at the same time, I'm like, literally, when I saw that tweet of hers, and I like almost passed out. I mean, fair enough. And I Me was too. like, I can't handle this. And then Connie deletes his tweets and then she goes like, hashtag Twitter fingers, hashtag you're getting bodied by a stripper nigga, which is an amazing Drake callback. Died. Best use of hashtags um, in like the past two years, I think. Yeah, no, it was, it's like the whole thing is crazy. The feud is like obviously not over because since this has happened, there's an amazing picture on TMZ of like, Chris driving over to Black China's house because that's where Rob is living now and like furious in her car and like because Black China was like flying to LA that day so it would be just her and Rob at the house and then get this as soon as Black China like lands at the Austin airport she got arrested because Chris Jenner is in the Illuminati and made that happen so Black China also a political prisoner for a couple hours uh-huh honey 2016 was the year we started doing live events, and in one of our more memorable, we sat down with Rebecca Traster in Los Angeles and talked about her book, All the Single Ladies, and the important and transformative power of women's friendships. Do you want to read us something from the book? Sure. Okay. Story time? Yes. Story time. (laughs) Yes. One of the reasons I think that I get to be here tonight is because this book contains the origin story of Amina and Ann. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't do that <laughs> we don't want that. 
<laughs> uh, they told me their stories before they even had this podcast. That's true. Separately, um, we told you. They yeah, told us. Yeah. Like, oh, it was like when you separate people to see if they're lying. Like you actually interviewed mm-hmm. us separately I and then had to them check separately. our stories. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm gonna do. I'm, I'm gonna do hopefully three brief readings about the story of Amina and Anne. In 2009. Two women living in Washington, D.C. were invited to a Gossip Girl viewing party. (laughs) (laughs) Anne Friedman, then 27, arrived with a boyfriend. Aminatou So, then 24, was wearing a homemade Chuck and Blair shirt (laughs) in reference to two of the show's nubile protagonists. They noticed each other right away. Amina said she knew immediately that Anne, funny, tall, loquacious, was someone she wanted in her life. Even as they left the party that first night, she hoped that Anne and her then beau would be walking in her direction. They weren't. I remember being really heartbroken, Amina said. Okay, it is weird to read your voice when you're next to me. I'm going to say that. I read this passage now a couple times at readings. That hasn't happened before that you were next to me. But when she got home, she discovered that Anne had already friended her on Facebook and knew then that they were meant to be. In a bit of social kismet, both women were invited to another event the very next day. They started hanging out all the time, discovered they shared pop culture and fashion interests. Anne was a journalist, Amina a digital strategist. As a way to get to know each other, they started a pop culture blog called Instaboner. That <laughs> I think it's still up. <laughs> Check it out later. <laughs> that chronicled their literary, political, and stylistic obsessions. We learned to speak the same language, said Amina. We were instantly close, agreed Anne in a separate interview. <laughs> It's so awkward. (laughs) They tell the truth. (laughs) Though their connection wasn't sexual, the process of falling for each other was almost romantic. With Amina, Anne said, she found, quote, the thing I always wanted but didn't get from relationships with men, pushing me to be better without seeming like they were constantly disappointed in me. She we very might have to leave. <laughs> she very quickly began to rely on Amina for emotional support, personal advice, and professional counsel. All the things that people say they turn to a partner for, I turn to Amina for, said Anne. Among the largely unacknowledged truths of female life is that women's primary, foundational, formative relationships are as likely to be with each other as they are with the men we've been told since childhood are supposed to be the people who complete us. Female friendship has been, has been the bedrock of women's lives for as long as there have been women. In earlier eras, when there was less chance that a marriage entered early, often for practical, economic, and social reasons, would provide emotional or intellectual succor. I hate saying that word out loud. <laughs> Female friends offered intimate ballast. Now, when marriages may ideally offer far more in the way of soulful satisfaction, but increasingly tend to begin later in life, if at all, Women find themselves growing into themselves, shaping their identities, dreams, and goals, not necessarily in tandem with a man or within a traditional family structure, but instead alongside other women, their friends. Anne described her friends, Amina chief among them, as my emotional support, my everything. And Amina said, I always tell Anne she's the single most important relationship in my life, not to put pressure on her. (laughs) No pressure. But because it's true. (laughs) Is this less fun than it seemed like it was going to be? This is so painful. I'm sweating a lot. (laughs) A couple of years after Anne and Amina began... Here's where we get to call your girlfriend. A couple of years after Anne and Amina began to twine their lives around each other, Anne decided to leave Washington to pursue a work opportunity. The separation was devastating. Amina remembered in detail the things they did together to gear up for her best friend's departure. The packing and the deaccessioning of, of, of Anne's stuff and the goodbye partying. On the morning that Anne set off across the, con- the country, moving first to Austin, Texas, and then on to Los Angeles, <laughs> Amina recalled how hard she cried. I went and got coffee at 7 in the morning, and I was hysterical, she said. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. The sadness Amina felt when Anne left didn't dissipate quickly. She started going to therapy again since, quote, the person I I would talk to wasn't there. Feeling that her social fabric in Washington, D.C. had unraveled, Amina began to make plans to leave the city. Anne was the center, she said, and without her, there was not a lot there for me. 
There was little chance that Anne, who had a big job in Los Angeles and was falling in love with her new city, was going to return east. Amina recalled a road trip they took together out west. Anne had gotten California plates and was glowing with affection for her newfound home. Amina remembered telling her, it's stupid beautiful watching how you fall in love with California. It's like watching the Grinch's heart grow. (laughs) (laughs) I was really grumpy on the East Coast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh... And then I'm skipping a little bit. She's the person I text all day, said Anne. If she didn't hear from me for a day, you could basically assume I was dead. (laughs) When Anne spent a year as a boss, she was careful never to talk to her colleagues about her romantic or her sex life, but she said they all knew Amina was my person. It's really important that my coworkers know Anne, said Amina. You have to know the place that Anne occupies because people only talk about their significant others. I don't even think I say she's my best friend because it's so much more than that to me. She is the person I talk about every day. She is my person. Man, that was really intense. You know, I remember Anne and I were on a trip in New York when she told me that she was having lunch with you and you were writing this book. And I was like, God, I love Rebecca Tracer. She's so cool. And (laughs) like two days later, you emailed me and I did a little dance around my computer. (laughs) And uh, and I I really remember talking to you about that. But it was also such a specific moment in time, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and the book process takes forever. And years later some fact checker calls you and it's like do you still feel this way <laughs> it's like his married couples had to answer to that the way we did yeah yeah and the thing is that i had never like ann and i had really never talked about talking to rebecca and so when she was reading the parts that she was fact checking for you i got really hot and uncomfortable mm-hmm. it's like i don't i'm like i can't handle this right now mm. right but um thanks for uh thanks for having us in your book thank you <laughs> Their story is so, I mean, those were just little bits of it. Their story is, is really so moving, and they both tell it so beautifully and with such care and wit, and it, I think it makes the book. Okay, so you know we talk about our periods a lot. You know we love weed. And so Whoopi Goldberg starting a weed products company uh, dedicated at soothing period woes was exactly what we wanted to hear. You know who else just got into the period game? Whoopi fucking Goldberg. Whoopi, yes. (sighs) Whoopi, I am not happy with for a lot of things these days because her opinions on like issues such as rape and sexual assault on The View can be really problematic. But I feel like she's coming back to the right side with this. So... Whoopi got into the medical marijuana game by like launching this new line of medical marijuana product that's designed for women. She's like doing it with this woman who's an edibles maker, which like a dream job, maybe, maybe called Maya Elizabeth. And the line is called Whoopi and Maya. Yeah. So basically the point is weed infused products for cramps and PMS and period pain and all of that stuff, which like those of us who live in the great state of California and other places where it is pretty much legal to consume marijuana for this purpose have been aware of for a long time. I am like really curious about like science wise, what are you doing that's different that is specifically great for cramps that like my wonderful dispensary is not telling me about <laughs> right i'm just like i really i really want to know like the, because the problem is that like there's not a ton of research on the benefits of medical marijuana because the federal government like won't let people <laughs> research what's going on so most of your research has to be personal and figure out what it is but i'm like i'm really i'm really curious to see like what some of these oils do because in all of the press that i've seen about it will be am i a really push home this idea that marijuana can be super helpful for period pain and for those of us who have like debilitating cramps it's like who knows anecdotally i can tell you that i believe this works (laughs) but you know i'm not a doctor and this is not medical advice so you know there's that drake lyric in what's my name where he says weed 
white wine. I come alive in the nighttime. <laughs> this is like this is like what happens when you've had a day of cramps. <laughs> I know, right? Good weed, white wine. Uh, I come alive in the nighttime. Yeah. Okay, away we go. Only thing we have on. Or is it we good good weed, white wine? I'm not sure. Anyway, but like Whoopi is basically monetizing a Drake lyric, which I 100% support. I know. One of the reasons too that I'm kind of excited about this is like a small aside by Whoopi being like a lady entrepreneur is that did you read that thing in BuzzFeed by uh, Gina's like lady friend Amanda Lewis that wrote shout about out Amanda Lewis yeah yeah that wrote about how like black people are shut out of the of the weed boom and so and that's true it's like black people disproportionately go to jail for selling marijuana that white people like disproportionately smoke right in fact I want to look it up because she had like my favorite line in the whole I like died when I read this oh here it is she's like the few black people who have managed to start cannabis businesses or apply for licenses have sometimes found themselves subject to discriminatory law enforcement ugh America they've been followed by the stigma that black people who sell pot are dangerous criminals and white people who do the same are goofy hippies so real with the goofy hippie line like so 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 real so it's like Whoopi and uh, Montel are essentially like the only two like public black people who are going into medical marijuana and might maybe make money out of it well there's Wiz Khalifa and Snoop Dogg and a couple of other names but they're all people who have gotten famous in other ways they're not selling like volume you know what I mean like they're selling like marijuana accessories they're not selling marijuana which is different I mean KK, I heard all about it on this podcast. (laughs) KK. Twenty sixteen was also a year that was filled with gun violence, and so we dedicated an episode to grappling with that issue and interviewing some women who have been directly affected. You know, it's like, how do white people get away with, like, shooting black men? But also, so much of it is about race, and so much of it is about guns and your relationship to them and your reaction to them. Right, and how they and enable someone who feels um, feels threatened for, like, for something that is based in, essentially, racism to act on that. Plus, P.S., yeah, no. the guy who shot him had, a, like, a, was totally permitted and, like, within the bounds of the law, like, to carry a gun. Like, you know, it's, no, it's definitely, exactly. yeah, exactly what we were talking about. And all he had to do was, like, think that this, like, black, normal, middle-class teen was a thug, and that's how he got away with it, right? And so, it's called, like, Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets, and you should watch it if you haven't seen it. But it's also been really interesting to watch Jordan Davis's parents, like, become these, like, spokespeople, essentially, and just, you know, fighting for justice for their son. I remember an interview that Lucia McBath, um, his mother, did with Ta-Nehisi Coates, where Tanahasi Coates like took his son and at the end she like has this exhortation for him like I'll link to it in the document but <laughs> that was definitely one of those like internet reading made me cry days um so yeah you know and it, it's so unfair that this is what his parents have to do now but they you know they're like essentially like fighting for black lives everywhere yeah, so we actually talked to Lucia McBath for this episode. She's been working with Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, doing outreach to faith-based communities, but also general advocacy and legislative work on this issue. I am Lucy McBath. I'm the mother of Jordan Davis. I'm a national spokesperson for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America and faith and community outreach leader for Every Town for Gun Safety. Maybe you can start by talking about how you got involved in this issue. I got involved in gun violence prevention, which I absolutely had no clue about the gun culture, the gun epidemic, gun violence epidemic. I didn't really have that much of an idea about what was really going on in the country until uh, until Trayvon Martin was murdered. And then, you know, Jordan was murdered very shortly thereafter, seven months after. And so I just, out of my angst and my anger, I wanted to know, you know, why the the faith community was not standing up and speaking out about morally and ethically what was happening in the country. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about the gun culture and the gun laws and how under our existing gun laws, you know, people were dying in the streets 
disproportionately, you know, young males of color. I wanted to address the nation, not just the black community, because I wanted the nation as a whole to understand that this is their problem too. So I liken uh, my work to being a bridge builder. I, uh, you know, talk to all audiences around the country. I talk with our legislators. I talk with our civic leaders, academia, the faith community, and I engage them uh, into gun violence prevention work. And so how do you, I mean, obviously a lot of people who are going to listen to this have not had a personal experience with gun violence that is so devastating or have not have not really had it affect someone in their family. How do you talk to people, kind of like the folks you were describing, who don't seem to think they have a personal stake in this issue? And how do you how do you convince them that this is really all of our problem? Well, I I basically say that, you know, if you think that you are immune to gun violence, then you're sadly mistaken because I for one thought that we were would never be affected by it. We weren't living in a community that was ensconced by gun violence. You know, we never had guns around the house. You know, Jordan was afraid of guns. We knew Jordan was in an environment, very safe environment. And I thought I'd done all the right things. I thought that, you know, I had homeschooled him and, you know, laid, laid a really good grounding and faith for him. And, you know, we were, you know, believers and just doing so-called all the right things. And you think because you believe that you're doing all the right things that you are not likened to be uh, a subject of gun violence. But that is absolutely not true because our gun culture has become so expansive. Our gun laws have become so loose and ambiguous that people are using their guns any way that they want to. People are deciding for themselves to take matters into their own hands. They're shooting first, asking questions later. People are using their guns as a means to silence people that don't look, think, or act like them. You know, people are acting out their implicit biases and racism through gun violence, and that if you think that you are immune to it, no one is. You know, gun violence has infiltrated the church. Gun violence has infiltrated the LGBTQ community. Gun violence has infiltrated every facet of society. And so we are all stakeholders in this because people are innocently dying in the streets every single day. We've got 91 people in this country that are dying every single day and hundreds more are injured by gun violence and no one is safe. We're supposed to be one nation under God. Everyone is responsible for trying to create a safer environment for all of us to live in and that you cannot turn a blind eye to the communities that are disproportionately affected by the gun violence because as I tell people all the time, as you've seen, the so-called gun epidemic in, you know, the urban community is no longer just the urban community's problem. If we do not care about communities outside of our own, if we do not care about people and individuals outside of our own reality and our own communities, then we are taking part in really the demise morally and ethically and violently of our own people and our nation. And that I say all the time is that maybe you can't do what I do. I'm not asking you to, but I'm asking you to use your voice and to stand up and let your legislators and your community leaders know that they are accountable to you, your safety. You can do that very easily, make your voice known. Making a phone call to your legislator, sending a letter to your legislator, sending a Facebook post or a tweet, or better yet, the best thing to do is to march yourselves up there to their offices, go to the Capitol, and demand that they pay heed to our safety. I, I talk to these legislators all the time, and I, I'm sitting there and I'm imploring with them as a, as a victim of gun violence, of having lost my own son to senseless gun violence. And they say to me all the time, okay, well, if this is true, that most of the people, that 90% of the people in this country believe as you do, and that 90% of gun owners believe as you believe, then where are they? And what can I say when I'm sitting there by myself and I don't have anybody there that, 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 you know, that is supporting 
when I'm, and what I'm telling the legislators, what I'm telling the civic leaders. What they say to me is that we hear all the time from the NRA gun lobby. They're pounding down our doors the minute any kind of legislation comes forth. They're sending them petitions. They're sending in hundreds of thousands of phone calls. Where are the people that believe like you? Yes, it's important to have prayer vigils. Yes, it's important to rally in the streets. But if you do not go beyond that, nothing changes. And we have to vote at our state and local elections. That's where all the gun laws are created and passed through the state legislatures. And that's where the power is. Federal law does not mirror state and local law. You know, you could perish too. I tell people that all the time. You never know when someone within your community or your family is going to be affected by gun violence. And then you're going to be kicking yourself saying, why didn't I do something? Why did I only pray? Why did I just say, Jordan, we have to pray for those families? Why did I not stand up and do more? So this year, we obviously talked a ton about the election, including an incredible interview with Huma Abedin, who's Hillary's right-hand woman, um, followed by a snippet about us processing the news of the election results. Can you tell us about the first time that you met Hillary Clinton? Like, what is it like just meeting this, you know, like an iconic figure, like, in politics. So this would have been in the fall of 1996. I was working uh, in the First Lady's office as an intern for her, um, you know, then Chief of Staff, uh, Milan Verveer, who did all of her policy. And every intern session, the interns had an opportunity to meet whoever um, was the head of their office. And the First Lady was very good about meeting all the interns in her office. And so the first time I met her was during that, um, this, you know, small session. She really, she would come over, take a photo with all of us, thank us all for our work, take a couple of questions. And I confess I was really, I've, I, I've thought back about that moment and I, I remember, I feel like, I was really nervous. We, it was in the midst of a work day. I was trying to figure out what I was going to wear and, you know, how I would look. And I was just, you know, shaking. I was so nervous. And it was kind of a blur. And we did it in the diplomatic reception room, which is in the residence. And it's this really beautiful oval-shaped room with this this spectacular wallpaper and it's like so just being in that room in the residence it's kind of one of those awe-inspiring moments and you know here I am this 21 year old intern in college thinking wow this is really cool that was the first time but my moment and I think I've talked about this in the past I think when President Clinton had his re-election uh, the, a few of us interns went to Little Rock and that was, so that was in November obviously and I remember being at the rally in Little Rock and it was election night and obviously he was reelected. And I remember being on the rope line and there are thousands and thousands of people and I was, you know, with a whole bunch of my friends and and you know, I had I had met her before, like I said, in this photo for 30 seconds. They come out and the crowd's electric. I don't it's you know, you know these things that happen in your life that just stick. That she walked by and she shook my hand and our eyes connected and I just remember having this moment where I thought wow you know this is amazing and I just it just inspired me and and you know I I still remember the look on her face and it's funny and she would probably be so annoyed that I say this but I remember thinking oh my gosh she's so beautiful and she's so little and you know it's just sort of because you know you look people look different on TV and I just thought wow Uh, and I had such a fangirl moment and I was hooked I mean and that sort of was my you know that's my first kind of my my memory I'm just like alternating between like deep sadness and 
deep rage also which like the rage has been good it's like once i moved on from being sad and i started getting angry i was like yes we're cycling through the grief (laughs) oh man i haven't hit rage phase yet although i just poured myself a very adult size glass of tequila and i'm hoping that helps me get there (laughs) yeah well why are we so sad Anne? oh okay well um america had an election this week it was a presidential election that was fairly important in which a fascistic sentient cheeto (laughs) was running against a very accomplished motivated woman who wants to make the world a better place and guess who won amina we are never saying his name on this podcast you can't voldemort him though we already did we already did like not not saying (laughs) his name it's the only thing that'll make me feel better is if i never say his name (laughs) all right all right hearing obama today at the press conference call him like president-elect ivanka's dad (laughs) that's when everything hit me and i couldn't handle it i know like his name on obama's lips the worst i it was i was like no way so yeah the election's over hillary clinton lost I'm gutted. That's like the, that's the appropriate word. Yeah. Well, you know, all's not lost. There was some, there was still some like very good news and some signs of progress in the night. And so maybe we can spend some time talking about that because that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> um, definitely. So the, the overall number of women in Congress is going to stay the same as of January, but women of color had a really good night in yeah, Congress. Yeah, quadrupled um, our presence in the Senate, which is really yeah. exciting. Hell yes. Like, And also, can we talk about the Senate is like a pool from which we pick future presidential candidates. So very, very important. Hell yeah. So let's see who had a good night in, uh, in the Senate. Kamala Harris, favorite and friend of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Are we preemptively friend of the podcasting? No, we're like, no, Kamala Harris is friend of the podcast. Hello. <laughs> okay. um, Interview list 2K17. Hello. Totally. Yeah. Like that was really good. She was a California attorney general and she won her race, which was exciting. Tammy Duckworth kicked some serious butt. Oh like, my God. Uh, so much butt. Love, uh, love Tammy Duckworth. So, so, so hard. Uh, Catherine um, Cortez Ka- Masto uh, from Nevada also. like First Latina senator ever. I know. Beat the heck out of Joe Heck. Hello. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so exciting. Um, and there's also like Oregon has the, um, the first openly LGBT governor in U.S. history. Good job, Oregon. What else? Oh, Minnesota has the nation's first Somali-American lawmaker who happens to be a woman. Hey. I know. Very exciting. California really did its part. Legalized weed. Sending a woman to the Senate. Delivered 55 electoral college votes. Thank you, California. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Some states Um, pull their weight. Some states do not. But you know what? It's fine. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't know. I mean, like, in in some ways, I'm celebrating the victories for these women as pipeline victories, because with both houses of Congress having a Republican majority, and we all know what's happening in the Orange House, as I'm going to call it from now on. Um, (laughs) Don't make me laugh on this day. Literally only two things have made me laugh today, and that is one of them. Thank you. You know what? I made a fart joke to someone earlier, and she was like, I can't believe I'm laughing so hard at this. And I was like, you know what? You you really have to go back to the basics of humor on a day like this. Like, zero, zero, ground level. Anyway, so, so, so yeah, so it's a tough environment for these women i don't really know like how much amazing legislation they're going to be able to pass however it's like remember their names support their campaigns think about them when someone's like oh but there's no one left after hillary and elizabeth warren like these are women to watch And finally, we talked about some coping strategies this year, including the personal philosophy, the joy of missing out, and the chill-out hoodie, which it seems like will be relevant all the more in 2017. If there is someone or something that makes you feel bad consistently, like, that's an easy unfollow. (laughs) I know. I'm also, like, such a proponent of the opposite of this, Jomo, the joy of missing out. I, like, (laughs) hate... You know, it's like sometimes like you'll see a party on social media that all your friends are at or some vacation that everybody went on 
or whatever. And the truth is that, like, if you're really honest, you know exactly how it went. You know, like, what the good things and the bad things were. Looking back and saying, like, this is great, but I didn't need to be a part of it. You know? It's true. Oh, my God. I'm totally adopting Jomo. Because, you know, there's also, it's really interesting, too, if, like, I, I think about my own life and the things that I post. Some of my best weeks where I'm like, oh, I'm just doing good work and I'm, like, living my life at home and I'm just, like, I'm having a great time. Like, nothing Instagram-worthy happens. Right. You like, know that what I mean? doesn't, doesn't translate to the gram. Exactly. And, like, other times when I'm really busy and stressed and running around and doing a million things, for some reason, maybe it's how I process stress, there are things to Instagram. It's weird. It's like, the internet is just not like this corner and this like vision of the internet is just not reality yeah it's just like not representative of who people are it always makes me laugh when like people have like terrible social media presences because i'm just like oh my god this is all theater (laughs) this is the one place it's like your friends and your families know that you're a jerk but like literally internet strangers don't have to know that you can just like charm them with like pictures of avocado slices and you know like coachella and all of this stuff and Strangers don't have to know any of that stuff about you. Like, all of that is, like, very well curated. It's, like, if you want to be really earnest about it, you can do that, too. Like, that's fine. But I think that in terms of just, like, taking a really hard look at somebody's life, technology just makes it easier for people to catfish you. That's, that's like, all of what technology is. You know? So, any... So, I don't know. And maybe for me, it's, like, I just... It's, like, where I work. So, I'm so hyper-aware of it. Yeah. People make really hard choices about, um, and, and sometimes not so hard choices about, like, what they want to portray um, and who they want to be online. And again, like, this is why the emphasis on, like, your real close IRL friendships is so important. Because you can feel this false sense of intimacy with people who you, uh, how you interact with people online. And that's not to say that, like, real friendships don't come from the internet, because I have, like, amazing internet friends and people who have, like, transitioned into becoming, like, real IRL friends. It's just really taking all of it with a grain of salt. And if you don't do that hard work of, like, actually, like, asking people, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? All of the stuff that's like beyond the artifice, you won't really get to know someone ever. (laughs) So, Anne, I want to confess something to you. I've been... There is this item of clothing that I want to buy, and I know that it's ridiculous, but I think that it will help with my anxiety. Tell me. It's this pink hoodie that's, like, legit a restraining jacket, but they don't talk. Like, like a Temple Grandin hugging jacket? Yeah, it's like a Temple Grandin hugging jacket. Google it. It's the Baker Miller pink hoodie. And it just, like, gives you a tight hug and you're calm again? Yeah, so... <laughs> There, it's like I was reading about it and I was like oh you know like they're like this is the performance hoodie and I read it and I was like oh my god this is a straight jacket I need whenever I'm feeling anxious I like to do the heavy blanket and I was like maybe this hoodie will help mm-hmm. I feel like this is my version of the people who wear that stupid ostrich hat like to like nap at the office oh my god I know exactly what you're talking about the, like, yeah. the one that looks like a deep sea diver only like yeah stuffed. yeah yeah I yep. found the version of that for me and I think it's this have you found it Yes. It's kind of crazy. They're like engineered to chill you out. And I'm like, I need to rewrite this copy. Engineered to make you not freak out. (laughs) I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. It looks like you are going to be walking through radioactive waste while wearing it. I know. I kind of really want it. You know, I don't believe in owning performance wear. But like, if I ever made an exception in my closet for something, it would be this. Oh my god. Because I, I put my shirt over my face all the time already. I know you do. It's what you do whenever you like can't handle what's about to happen. I know. Also, and these descriptions are so funny. The mesh visor floods your vision with a shade of pink designed to lower your heart rate. It allows you to see out, but no one to see in. <laughs> <laughs> it's one hundred percent a straight jacket, and they're just like, hey, fashion. This is like a really high-end version of putting like pantyhose over your face to rob someone. <laughs> this is like, you're like, well, I'm actually into performance burglary and I need the Baker Miller pink You're hoodie. so right. In my heist movie, like this yeah. will be what everybody is wearing. Oh my God, completely. And you'll just be like so calm cat burglin. 
I know. It's like, you know what really did it for me, though, was the pockets. It's like putting your arms in the asymmetrical sling pocket helps you minimize movement, limit limit oxygen consumption, and focus on deep stomach breathing. Like, oh that's what I need. See, now all you have to do is learn how to, like, do some mission impossible acrobatic things while your hands are in the asymmetrical pockets, and you're good. This is oh. how your crime career, this is how you take back the professions from, like, evil men. <laughs> I need clothing that will make me less anxious, and I want to believe this hoodie is it. Maybe this is the solution to the pay gap problem. All women just start wearing these, or all people who are in solidarity with women, (laughs) and you can't tell who's a woman, and then you can't cut their pay in the profession. It's like we all just wear these hoodies. (laughs) I'm going to tell you now, though, if I see a man on the street wearing this hoodie, I know I found my soulmate. Oh, I like, thought you this, were going to say, I know to run. <laughs> no, I was reading all this research about how, how like, pink calms you. And uh, my least favorite color in anything. And apparently, like, that's what I need. Oh, man, I just ordered some pink trousers. I'm, go- I'm, I'm getting into pink for rosé season. <laughs> man, like frat boy pink? Or no, like- no, no, like a, like a mauve kind of. Like- <laughs> I like how, like, I said frat boy pink and we all knew where I was going. Oh, yeah, like, like, uh, like Yacht Club Salmon, that yeah, pink. My yeah, my daddy's no. a lawyer, that uniform. Oh, yes. completely. Yeah, like, I hang out with a guy named Trip. um first of all that really hurts you know i have a trip in my life i would have gone for something like thatcher okay great thatcher a megan kelly child name yardley her daughter's name is yardley uh yardley that just yeah that just sounds like a very expensive lily pulitzer like pantaloon and she has another son named edward yates edward yates and thatcher bray oh my god and yardley evans wow these are amazing yeah megan kelly and donald trump at it again oh my god he just keeps being rewarded for not quitting on this i mean it's gonna get rewarded all the way to the white house it's like not cool oh my god currently zipping up my chill out hoodie i can't even handle that uh, can you i can't wait till i buy this pink restraining jacket hoodie and then like this is how i'm gonna record the podcast every that's how week. we'll survive the trump white house is in those restraining hoodies that's how we'll survive everything <laughs> Uh, one day when I'm Oprah rich, I'll buy these for everyone I know. This concludes our tour through 2016 in the land of Call Your Girlfriend. You can find us many places on the internet, on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Or on iTunes, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Look that shit up on yourself. (laughs) 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 Or on, yeah, don't send us a message there. Or on Instagram at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. I am so thankful that this podcast is produced by Gina. So grateful for Gina every day. Ugh, the best. All right, boo-boo. I will see you on the internet. See you on the internet.